ladies and gentlemen, Rockport here on WDAY. Good afternoon, Natil. How are you? Doing great. It's a Monday. I'm all raring to go for the week. Opening day yesterday was pretty fun. You know, I goofed up on the show. I guess they moved opening day. I was all confused because opening day was supposed to be today is the official opening day. And and so that's, that's what I had on my calendar. And then when I looked at the Yankees schedule, I, the first game I saw was Tuesday, right? But they actually had a game yesterday. I guess because ESPN wanted Sunday night baseball or something like that. I don't know. So I was all confused. So big surprise, Sunday was actually opening day, and I watched baseball, and it was live, meaningful baseball, and it was awesome. Summer's finally here. It feels so good. Although the Yankees lost. They got a shellacking, which wasn't, which wasn't so fun. But whatever. There's 161 games left, so... <laughs> There's still hope. There's still plenty of time. <laughs> We're not out of it yet. Uh, okay, so today I'm going to, in a moment, going to talk about uh, wind power subsidies. There's a fight over um, wind power that's been ongoing in the legislature. We'll talk a little bit about that. Also, coming up at 1.35, you know, last week we there was a debate over Andrew's Law, what they're called Andrew's Law. And by the way, I hate it when we name laws after people. Uh, you know, I'm on the record about that, but that's that's how this law is. Known. It was inspired by Andrew Sadek. Uh It was the legislature. It was introduced by State Representative Rick Becker, a Republican out of Bismarck. It was the legislature attempting to write some guidelines into law for how law enforcement handles criminal informants. It was hoghoused in the state Senate, which turned it into basically a, a mandate that law enforcement writes and enforce their own rules, which... I think stuck in a lot of people's craws because BCI investigated the issue around Andrew Sadik, which was the genesis for the legislation, and concluded that nothing wrong happened. And so I think a lot of people who are thinking, well, we need to change things up here. We're going to hand over the rulemaking process to the group of people who already didn't see that anything was wrong. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, we're going to have on uh, McLean County State's Attorney Lad Erickson. He had a guest post on SayAnythingBlog.com this morning uh, regarding this issue. He thinks what the Senate's doing is the right way to do it. He saw the original House bill as being too restrictive on law enforcement trying to use criminal informants, so we'll talk with him about that uh, once again coming up at 135. 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329 if you want to get in. Uh, email talk at WDAY.com or tweet me at Rob Port. Okay, let's talk about wind energy. Um, there's been a fight in the legislature. There was a bill introduced by uh, State Senator Jessica Unruh. She's a Republican from Beulah, which is coal country. Uh, that bill, uh, as it was originally written, would have prohibited any electrical rate increases in North Dakota justified in any way by green energy mandates in other states. It also would have ended the presumption that wind energy gets to sell all their power into the power grid before anybody else. Um, that latter is is a big issue because essentially what that has done is put base load power producers like coal plants, primarily here in North Dakota, in the position of needing to maintain all the capacity to provide all the power that the grid may need that you and I may want so that when we hit that light switch in our house, the light comes on, or when it's 100 degrees outside, the air conditioning is working. Coal plants got to be able to provide all of that power, 
Cole Plants and everybody else besides Win when the wind isn't blowing. But when the wind is blowing, the only market share that they get access to is whatever's left over after Wind sells all their power onto the grid. Now, that's a little bit like saying, hey, I need you to drive around an SUV and pay those higher fuel rates and everything all the time just in case me and my family might need a ride one day. It's not really fair. So that's what the bill did. It was then amended. It was turned into one point of moratorium on wind development, and then it was turned into um, uh, you know, an- another iteration where basically we're going to study the issue, but we're also – um, I, I think as, a, as it emerged from the Energy and Natural Resources Committee in the House last week, you know, it did. It, it was basically it's a study, and then it would have basically not allowed any. You know, we would have to consider the need for wind power before we we the Public Service Commission approves any more wind power. Anyway, suffice it to say, there's been a big fight over wind going on in the legislature. So. Last week, there was an amendment to this bill again, and it, it would have it would have done two things. It would have required that the Public Service Commission consider the need for the wind power and also whether or not it would destabilize the power grid, right? Because that's what a lot of people are concerned about is we're going to create a situation where we are so dependent on wind, we have given wind such an advantage in the marketplace that it is driving out baseload power sources so that when the wind's not blowing, we may not have enough base power load to supply all the energy that we need. That's a real concern. A lot of people, including uh, members of our Public Service Commission, have been talking about that for a long time. And the bill was killed. And what was interesting about the bill being killed is Representative Mike Brandenburg, he's a Republican from Edgeley, uh, he is a reliable ally of the wind energy, he called the amendment, which was introduced by House Majority Leader Al Carlson, he called it, quote, a glorified moratorium. And you think about those words for a moment, a glorified moratorium. Why is it a glorified moratorium? Because he's arguing that if we apply those two standards to new wind energy projects, A, that they're needed, and B, that they not destabilize our power grid, he's saying that if we apply those, that's a de facto moratorium on developing wind energy. And what does that say about wind energy? Maybe A, that a lot of it's not needed, and B, that it's destabilizing our power grid. I think those are the two logical conclusions to draw. I, I, I think we've got to remember that we're building a lot of power wind power plans not to m- provide reliable energy to meet demand in the marketplace, but to gobble up federal subsidies. And as a matter of fact, in, in what's a pretty remarkable letter sent by state legislative leaders to Senator John Hoven concerning the wind power production tax credit, They argue, quote, we are concerned, and by the way, this is a letter signed by Senate Majority Leader Rich Wardner and House Majority Leader Al Carlson, among other members of the legislature. The letter reads, I quote, we are concerned about the federal government subsidizing out-of-state companies to use North Dakota as a staging area to mine federal taxpayer funds. To mine federal taxpayer funds. What they are arguing is that we are building wind power not because it's needed, but because the government is making so much money available for it people are cashing in that's the problem and unfortunately not a lot of people are talking about this this is a real problem we have created a real distortion in the power markets and there are real consequences if we don't do something about it 
Love to hear what you think, though. 701 293 Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report here on 970 WDAY. 888-970-9329. That's a toll-free number. Local number. 701-293-9000. Email talk at WDAY.com. We, um, and, and by the way, coming up in the next segment, Lad Erickson, he's a prosecutor. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Andrew Saddock's law. Uh, regarding the uh, the use of criminal informants, Lad Lad thinks that, and that bill's not dead, by the way. The House passed a very different version of it than the Senate did, so there's going to have to be some negotiation between the two chambers, and there's still a chance we could get some good policy out of it. I don't like what the Senate did, but Lad Erickson, who is a prosecutor, he's a state's attorney out in McLean's County, he feels like it was a good policy, so we'll talk with him about that. Um now I was talking about wind power, and and by the way, I mean this has been a huge. There's been a joke down at Bismarck that there have been so many lobbyists dropped into North Dakota this session that it's almost like an economic development program for Bismarck, uh, wind energy lobbyists, and it's it, it's kind of funny because they're what what they're they're protecting. I mean they they know they essentially have most favored status under our current policies. And it's it's ridiculous. It's it's bad public policy. In the long run, it's not going to serve the public well. And I say that not as somebody who is an enemy of wind power, right? I, I think it would be great if, if we could power everything with wind turbines and we didn't have to dig for coal or drill for natural gas or any of that kind of stuff. If, if we could just, you know, put wind turbines in our backyards or have, you know, developments of them out in the countryside or whatever, if we could do it that way, that would be great. I wouldn't be against that. The problem is we are getting to where we're at with wind energy right now, not because of market demand, which is that wind is providing you know a, an affordable and reliable source of energy at competitive rates. We're getting there because wind is heavily subsidized, heavily subsidized, and also because wind gets to sell all their power first. And Building our power grid on top of that policy, and by the way, we're, we talk all the time about getting rid of the protection production tax credit. You'll even, even hear the wind energy industry sometimes say they're ready to get rid of the production tax credit, and yet somehow it always gets renewed. That's been happening over and over and over again. And what it does is it's, it is leading to some distortions in the energy markets, which are real, and I think too often when people make that point, they get dismissed as, well, you're just you're just out shilling for coal or you're just out or it's very partisan. Right. Like it's very like Republicans are supposed to be for coal and oil and Democrats are supposed to be for for wind and solar and biofuels and everything else. And, and the reality is. We've got to let the market decide where we go, because the problem right now the energy market is being led around by the nose by government policy, by a bunch of politicians. We have wind energy 
having risen to the level that it is, to the market share that it has in the American power grid, based on the fact that we subsidize the heck out of it. I mean, we subsidize it to the point the American taxpayers just about cover all of the expense the expenses for producing wind energy. It is it is that large of a subsidy. And so, you know, not only could coal not, you know, compete with that. I mean, of course, wind's going to be cheaper when the taxpayers are covering all the costs of producing wind energy. Of course, coal can't compete. Of course, you know, even natural gas can't compete. And by the way, natural gas is cheaper than coal these days, too. And if, if, we, if, if natural gas ended up being the energy of the future and coal went away because natural gas is just a better alternative, then fine. That's the way the world works, you know. I'm not going to sit around and cry that nobody's selling horse and buggies anymore because we have automobiles. But the problem is, is it, you know, the problem would be is everybody started buying automobiles that didn't work, not because we wanted them and there was demand for them, but because the government was subsidizing them and they were cheap. That's not a good way of going about it. And, I mean, we are going to reach a point where, if we keep going in the direction we're going, that one day the wind's not going to be blowing. We're not going to have enough baseline power capacity to provide all the energy we want. And now all of a sudden, your air conditioner's not going to work. Your your electric car's not going to charge. Because we're making ourselves too dependent on wind energy. And again, I mean, wind has its uses. We may even get to a point where wind, if we could figure out how to store the power... Right, if we could, if we could get battery uh, technology to the point where we could store the power, some other way to store the power, so that we could we could store up the excess power wind produces when the wind is blowing, so that we have something to use when the wind's not blowing. If we could get there, well, then great, that's wonderful. Let's use a bunch of wind, but we're not there yet. And that's the point I think the lawmakers are trying to make when they're telling Senator Hoven this is killing us. When Public Service Commissioner Randy Crispin is out there saying, this is killing us. It's not about protecting the coal and Well, for me, it's not about protecting the coal industry. I'm sure there are people out there who are in the tank for coal who are out to you know protect the industry. It's protectionism. But to me, I just want a competitive marketplace. I want wind to compete in a fair market. And it's not. It's not a fair market when you have the, the, the wind power production tax credit and you have wind basically getting first dibs to sell their energy. And people are going to tell me, oh, what about all the subsidies for coal power and everything else? They don't hold a candle. They don't hold a candle to what wind energy is getting. We are best served by a free market. We are best served by supply and demand to driving where we get our energy from. If it were left up to supply and demand, wind would be marginal in the power grid. It's not marginal in the power grid because of politicians. And when is it ever a good idea to let politicians blaze the path like that? It's not usually a good idea. All right, we're going to talk about criminal informants coming up next with Prosecutor Lad Erickson. This is the Rob Report on 970 WDAY, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. Talk at WDAY.com. We'll be back. Don't go away. Now I get my little baby now, and I'm the ninth degree. 
Welcome back, Rob Report here on 970 WDAY, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. Legislature's been having a little bit of a hot debate over Andrew's Law. Uh, it's uh, and, and by the I hate laws named after people, but that's that's how people know this one. Uh, it was inspired by Andrew Sadek, uh, who was uh, acting as a criminal informant for law enforcement. He was a Wapitan, uh, North Dakota State School of Sciences student. Uh, he ended up dead. People, uh, a lot of people think law enforcement didn't handle that all that great. Uh, the bill in the legislature, which originated with State Representative Rick Becker, Republican from Bismarck, uh, aimed to write into the law some guidelines for law enforcement to use that. When the Senate got a hold of the bill, they basically gutted it uh, and turned it into something where basically they just said, hey, law enforcement, come up with some rules, um, which... I didn't like, but my guest thinks that was the right move. He has a guest post about it at SayAnythingBlog.com today. Lad Erickson, McLean County State's Attorney, how are you? Hey, very good. Thanks for having me, Rob. You're here to tell me all the ways I'm wrong about this bill coming out of the Senate. Tell me why. Well, Rob, the the bill and the public narrative are two different things. You know, I'm focusing on the bill, not the narrative. And when it came as, over as to the Senate, I. excuse me? As am I. I mean, I'm not. I I read yeah. the bill that, that came out of the Senate. I don't. I don't think I. Here's here's my prime. Well, here I'll I'll let you introduce you. Make your point. Well, I went through the bill and I looked at what are the policy problems in it. One of the problems is you know this bill started as a model bill in Florida and they had penalties uh, in the bottom of the bill that were taken out in the House. So there's no penalty for violating it or no sanction. Well, that creates a lot of nothing. Then is one of the problems. But secondly. We should have some standards for uniform conduct for the police. And the way we do that now on a whole host of issues is through the North Dakota Post Board. They regulate police conduct. And to me, the premise of the bill is, is wrong, is you create a bunch of laws that don't have any ramifications for violation. And, for example, Rob, because this is a model bill out of Florida, <coughs> excuse me, that is being driven by the situation in Wapiton, the model bill only addressed police that are university or college police officers running students as informants. That wasn't the case in Wapiton. And so the bill doesn't address the Wapiton situation, even as it came over from the House. The Senate version is going to affect all officers running informants, whether they work for the, the, the campus police or they work for BCI. And we think that's a better policy is to have a uniform no matter who the officer works for. So what happened in Wapiton, they missed it. And that's not going to be affected by the House bill. That's one major okay. issue is people want to address to that. And we sure. we didn't do it. And, I, well, so. I, and I, I understand that. But that problem in the House bill could have been fixed to an amendment. What happened in the Senate is they hog housed it. They replaced the entire right. bill. And, and, and my big here, here's my big concern, because I you and I agree and I think I think Representative Becker agrees. I think everybody agrees. We need some uniform standards. We don't have uniform standards right now. We need something that says this is how we're going to approach this situation. The problem I have with the Senate bill is it seems like we're asking we're asking law enforcement to develop that when law enforcement didn't see any problems with the SADC situation. That was investigated. They found no wrongdoing. I think the public that's looking at the situation with Andrew Sadek and saying this is demonstrative of why we need change, 
are not going to be happy with relying on the people who don't see a problem with the SADC situation to to implement that change. Well, I don't know. I don't know the facts down there or what the investigation showed. I've seen the media parts, so I don't. I can't speak there. But the administrative rule <laughs> process is how all professional licensing in North Dakota gets monitored, and it is the place if you're going to. In other words, if you do everything in the bill, then you don't have the the enforcement on it. So the the purpose here is to set some standards that have to be approved by the legislature. They'll be written after the session, then they go back to the legislature and say, okay, this is what we think should be the uniform guidelines with dealing with vulnerable adults, juveniles, people in treatment, whatever they, you know, whatever they lay out as that. And then the debate over the actual substance of the rules occurs at that point. So I'm not at the point saying now that we're not going to address some of the substantive policy things, but by doing it in the legislation, um, you're not doing anything that has any any enforcement or any ramifications for violations. So there was a host of those kind of issues that needed to get addressed because I think uh, Senator Armstrong and them want ramifications. You know, he's actually held, handled informants as an attorney, and he's seen things that he wants to address right. in rules. So officers don't do some things, and I'm not disagreeing with them. So I think it's a matter of this is the beginning of a process to try to create good policy on this issue, not that we're trying to divorce. If we pass the bill, we change nothing. From the house, if the house bill passes, nothing changes from what happened in Wapiton. So, all right. Well, we have we have two. I mean, the, the the house version of the bill is still in play because that's the version the house passed. The Senate passed right. a completely different version. Now they've got to hammer the two sides out. Is there some middle ground here where we we put in place the legislature puts in place? Listen, these are the standards we want. And then turns that over to the post board and says it's up to you folks to enforce this. I mean, is that some middle ground that we could find? I think it has to be general. Let, let me give you a hypothetical, Rob. Like one of the things the House bill said is if you're in outpatient treatment, you can't work as a CI. Okay. Now, on its face, there's a good argument to say, well, that's good. If people are trying to get dried out, we don't want to be putting them in situations, right? Where they're going to be out buying drugs or whatever. Right. But then again, my my world is all about traffic stops between Bismarck and Minot. That's where McLean County pipelines, and those people are in treatment, but they went to get another load of drugs in Bismarck, and we want to run back into the hotel where the rest of the rest of the wait is that night. But because the statute says they're in treatment, you can't use them. But they're not. They're in treatment only because somebody ordered them to. They're not taking it serious. So you don't want to create like this inflexible statute that says just because a person is in treatment. You know, you can't use their information or, you know, or, you know, use them as a format because a lot of the treatment is court ordered because they're on parole or probation and they're they're just doing what they have to. But they're still in the life in the game, you know, manipulating everything. So, you know, I would be concerned about the statute saying you can't do X, Y and Z. You know, obviously, Rob, you and I can come up with things that should never happen. Juveniles running, buying drugs, for example, that doesn't happen. So we could you know, we could find areas that don't happen. But. I would be concerned about saying something like college student when I think as I put my blog post, you know, I was an Army veteran. We have people that get out of the penitentiary and go to college. I wouldn't say that college student per se should always be an off-limits person, especially how the bill defines what an informant is, which is pretty broad. You know. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. I, I think the public's concern here is that 
again, with the Sadik situation, they saw something where you had a law enforcement officer telling a kid who did not have an attorney. And, and listen, a- Andrew Sadik made some decisions that put himself in that situation. He was an adult. He made some decisions uh, some and, and, and apparently broke the law and put himself in that situation. But there's a lot of people who watched that interview with him uh, and the law enforcement officer. And this cop telling this kid that he's going to get 40 years in jail if he doesn't cooperate. Uh, and and they, they saw they saw a bully. They, they saw a kid who was in some ways being taken advantage of. How do we protect people in those situations? Well, I think the idea behind, and I'm not going to reference that case because, again, I don't know it, but the idea behind that kind of stuff where there could be officer conduct is to have people give them an out where the, the House bill didn't, give them a place to file that has to be uh, an administrative sanction board, you know, so there's something there. But, Rob, you know, my scenarios here, they just understand there is that scenario that is driving the narrative on it. But the bill affects everything. It affects 40-year-old people that have been in the pen that want to be an informant. It affects, uh, you know, our problem in McLean County is we have more people that want to be informants that, than we use. We, we get them in here on stops and arrests, and they want to start telling us where Pablo Escobar is. And, you know, all the big stuff, they're always kind of trying to manipulate us, too. And... You know, it's not just that one scenario, but we want to address that one scenario. We think the proper place is through the administrative disciplinary system that the officers already have in place and add to that for those cases that the officer's conduct is not what is acceptable. But, but, what but where, where, else, where else do we do that? I mean, I understand we do that. And I mean, it's it's one thing if we're talking about dentists or whatever, but we're here we're talking about law enforcement officers who are armed and can deny us of our liberty and even our lives in some situations legally and and basically we're asking them in some very touchy situations to make up their own rules we don't do that with the oil industry right we don't we don't we don't punt and say oh we've had a bunch of oil spills oil companies figure out how to fix it no we write laws we create policies that are administered by third parties by by doing what the senate bill does it seems like we're just turning it over to the cops and saying Fix yourselves. No, I don't agree with that assertion. I mean, all the medical doctors have boards that are made up of medical doctors. The attorneys have uh, disciplinary boards that enact rules made up by attorneys. You know, every licensing profession has. Now, some of them have different makeups where there's different civilian components plus people from the profession that do the rulemaking and do the enforcement of those rules. But that's pretty common. I mean, the bar association model is the same way. There's a you know, there's a board's made up of attorneys. You can file a complaint to them. The attorneys look at the conduct, you know, and is it perfect? No, but it's the same system that the post board does is the attorney general has a has an assistant attorney general assigned to the post board. The rules will yeah. go out. They'll go through public comment. And then after the rules are are proposed, the legislature has to approve them through a public hearing process, you know, where they can be amended by the legislature. You know, it's just that's how they do it. And then when if a violation comes in, first of all, the first task of this is to get a uniform set of rules, which is going to work across the board. Now there's going to be, if there's outlier cases that need to go before the disciplinary process, then it's a matter of people filing that complaint and letting letting that process work out. But the rulemaking itself is going to have a lot of public involvement and legislative involvement. That's not something the cops are going to be able to just write and put in place. Legislature has to prove all that. 
Well, I, I hope you're right. I mean, because there are consequences to you know losing the public's trust. I, I think I think cases like the Andrew Sadik case, which which frankly, lad, you probably need to get up on because that is what's driving a lot of this debate, for better or worse. Perception is reality, and if the if the public continues to perceive law enforcement as being self-serving or doing what's in their best interest rather than necessarily the public's best interest, we're going to continue to have pr- problems. And I think we all want to avoid that. I am I am certainly not somebody who's out to, to attack law enforcement or to undermine them or make their jobs harder. But at the end of the day, I, 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 don't, I, I think we all have trouble being objective when it comes to our own situations, cops included. And so I think there's an appropriate role for the, for the legislature here. And I, well, I think what the Senate, I, I, I don't think what we're going to end up with is the Senate bill. I think we're going to end up with, with some amalgamation of the House and Senate bill that hopefully passes and moves us towards some sort of a uniform set of policies. But I, I think we need to be very careful about being glib about the, the public's concerns here because they're real and, and you know, there's, there's consequences for ignoring them. Well, Rob, I told, okay, I agree with you. And the House bill did not address the attic Senate situation because they weren't university officers. That's the only thing that bill addressed because it's a model bill out of Florida that didn't take our local situation in mind. Okay. The only bill on the table right now that addressed the SADC situation is the Senate bill, not the House bill, right? So I'm not saying you're wrong, but the public needs to read the House bill, and it says in there only university and police cannot use – only Which, university or college police cannot run an informant, and uh, that's a college student. And the Senate bill says all officers are in that same boat. So I think the House, Senate bill actually covers that where the House well, bill doesn't. I, 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 I think we're going to be best with some mix between the House and the Senate bill. But, Lad, I, we're I out of time. I agree with you, Rob. So Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we found some common ground anyway. Lad, thanks for your time. Certainly appreciate it. You bet. Take care. We'll wrap the show up right after this. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report here on 970 WDAY, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329. Just a few minutes left. Jay Thomas show coming up next. Stay tuned for that. I don't, I don't know. What did you think of that debate, uh, Natil? Uh, it, it really sounds like both of you had already made your minds up Yeah, pretty strongly. So finding – it's one of those cases where finding middle ground is tough, especially when – when there's something so local and personal on the line, yeah, like is the case with Andrew Sadek specifically. It's you know, and I, I we've always got to be careful when we're making policy based on an anecdote, right? Like like something because ha- we see that a lot, right? Something awful happens, and then we try to make public policy based on that one situation, and it's tricky because there's a lot of variables. And when you write law, it's the law for everybody. And so you, you, you've got to be careful because otherwise we end up with a lot of policy based on anecdotes that's maybe not going to result in the outcomes that we all want. So I, I think we need, it's part of why I don't like – it's part of why we should pass Rob Port's law, which is where laws named after people automatically require a supermajority. What do you think about that? <laughs> Well, I tell you what, I I would I would be fine with that if it takes back Marcy's law. Well, yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, so I don't know. I mean, this, the the thing with that, I, I think I think the Andrew Sadik case, though, 
as an anecdote, does illustrate a need, at the very least, and I think that's something Lad and I agreed on, at the very least, a need for some sort of uniform policy statewide for this is how we're going to handle criminal informants. Because um, right now, I think it's just it's just sort of department to department, you know, jurisdiction to jurisdiction, how we're handling it. So we need that policy in place. I think where we disagree is who's going to write the policy. Should the legislature write it into law or should we let the cops write it? And I'm a little skeptical of letting the cops write it because the BCI investigated the Bureau of Criminal Investigation investigated the Sadik case, and they didn't find anything wrong. And I'm having a hard time as a citizen who watched the video of Sadik and that, that law enforcement officer when he was you know, getting pressured to become a criminal informant. I watched that video, and I saw a lot of things wrong. It, yeah, it's, it's really hard to feel like Andrew Sadik wasn't taken advantage of in that case. And I think that's what the large majority of the public is concerned about, isn't so much that you know, criminal informants are a thing, but it's that they they don't seem to have, they don't seem to be treated the same way as, you know, you or I would be if we were being asked to, to do something like here's, that. Here, yeah, well, here's, here's a bit of bulletproof advice for anybody. If you're interacting with the police over some sort of a crime, right, a where you're, get a lawyer. Right get away. a lawyer. I want a lawyer. Do not make decisions based on the advice that the police give you. Get a lawyer. You need a lawyer. I don't care if you are a lawyer. Get a lawyer. Jay Thomas Show coming up next. Remember, you can always catch me, Rob Port, here on 970 WDAY, 1 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. Or you can get me 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again. From the